Hey there, welcome to SaaS Inbound, brought to you by SaaS Group. I'm your host, Anna Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business a success. And today with me is Sven, co-founder of Sastrify, a virtual SaaS service procurement software that improves SaaS operations management and SaaS spending. They raised about $32 million, if I'm not mistaken, over the last three years, and are actively winning the world's procurement market from Cologne, Germany, which is fascinating. How are you doing that? <laughs> Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah, well, it's been quite a ride. Um, actually, the 32 was just our, our last round this year. Um, so there's okay. a couple couple more bucks uh, that went in over the last, uh, last three years. Uh, but as one of our investors always used to say, fundraising is not a business model. Um, so I think the whole point of... Uh, of Sastrify really helping companies buy and manage all their software and all their SaaS stack, um, which then basically um, yeah provides great ROI for them. Um, so we've hundreds of, of happy customers so far. Um, so it's been quite a quite a cool ride for the past couple of years. Okay, awesome. Well, uh, I'd love to know more, and I know that it's not your your first rodeo. So maybe we can get into your background at first, right, and talk about the previous startup because you you sold it, right, and then you went to to build Sastrify, which is also like a completely different thing from what you were building before. So can we get there? Sure. So maybe the super quick background on us. So Max, my co-founder myself, we've known each other for about 14 years by now. Uh, so it's been a while. We've been college roommates for quite a big part of that. Then kind of like started our first company back in 2014, uh, which was called Evo Park. Uh, we basically built payment solution for in-car payments. So anything that you could buy and pay for out of your car, um, mostly car parks. So quite a quite a fun industry, actually quite weird um, as well. So I spent a lot of time in, in in car parks with gates and payment machines and stuff like that. And then after after about four and a half five years, um, we got acquired. Uh, so it was quite a quite a fun ride. So Max and I stayed on board for another yeah year and a half, two years almost. But both of us already knew that at one point we wanted to do something new again, something uh, together again. Um, that's one of the big pitfalls of founding a company is that after that, there's not a lot of options of what you what you can do other than just founding another company. Um, and yeah, one of the topics that both Max and I saw in our day to day, because Max was the, the technical guy and I was more the, the commercial side of things. Uh, was really the topic of how we bought software, right? So that's for, for us. And then also the company that acquired us, the whole topic of how do we buy software? What do we actually need? What should we pay for it? Um, just took a lot of time and a lot of effort. Um, and then obviously also in the end, it's a huge cost bucket, right? So software by now is always within the top like three to five line items of any company. Um, so it's really about figuring out how can I make this more efficient? And that's kind of what got us started back in 2020. So about three years ago. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Well, thank you. Thank you for the intro. And uh, I, I think I've only had like one other founder of a, a similar software on the podcast over the this year. And how, uh, so basically, I don't know, uh, I hope it's not a rude question. What is the main differentiator between you guys and the other procurement softwares out there? Yeah. So in the end, there's the, um, I think that the biggest focus for any kind of software that you sell right now is ROI, right? And I think that's where we really excel. Um, so that it's really transparent in terms of, okay, I pay X amount for Sastrify, but it helped me save Y, Y hopefully being much bigger than X um, on all my other software. So that's, I think that's what really makes a difference. Obviously, the, the topic of 
I have too much software flying around. It's not a new one. Um, and as with any good idea, it, it would be a bad sign if nobody else thinks about that. Um, but I think what really makes us different is that focus on being RI positive for our customers, making sure that they really benefit from it. And then that makes like the commercial aspect of it is just much, much bigger uh, than most of the other technical aspects. Okay. And how are you ensuring that? Like, because again, like there are other solutions like that. How do you make sure that your ROI, and I, I know some numbers uh, and they're crazy. Uh, so you're doing a really, really good job, but uh, how are you doing that exactly? I mean, in the end, it um, it comes down to three things. I think one is the, um, the first one is processes. So that's really where we invest a lot of time in and also a lot of product work goes into the whole part is like, how can we make it easy for companies to buy in the right way? I always like to compare it with travel booking, right? So you want to make it easy for your employees to buy software, like to build, uh, to book a hotel. Uh, it should be as easy as on booking.com or any other like um, platform, but it should be within company guidelines. And I think that's kind of like what we're trying to mimic. So make it easy for them, but within the best interest of the company. So that's, that's the first one. Um, so, just knowing what you buy and having a structure in place for that already saves you a ton of money. Then the second part for us is, is really quantity. So right sizing of contracts of 500 different licenses and Sastrify can tell me, Hey, out of those 500, did you know that only 400 have actually been used, um, over the last like three months? And then the third part is really, um, the pricing piece. And that is typically the, the pricing intelligence, just to give you a sense of like, on the SaaS platform, we manage about $2 billion in software spend by now. Um, so we do know quite well what you should be paying for any sort of software. Um, and that allows us really to help procurement teams specifically, um, but obviously also finance teams and, and smaller companies to really figure out, like, do I get a good price? Should I ask for another discount? Um, and what, what does that kind of like mean for, for from a company perspective? Okay, makes sense. And uh, let's get to those numbers. Like, what is on average the the ROI for for the companies that that you're working with, and what is the highest now? Because I remember, I think that the last one uh, I heard in another podcast was like forty, uh, uh, forty times as as much as they are paying for Sastrify. But yeah, what is it now? Yeah, those are those are typically the regretted ones for us because then we know we were too cheap. <laughs> um, but uh, in the end, no, I think we we always like. What feels right is typically an ROI somewhere around like four to five X or more. That's typically when you say, oh, this really made sense for me, right? So I think that's kind of the where, where it gets to being a no-brainer. Um, but that being said, we definitely had outliers where it's just like, um, yeah, we, we've, we've seen situations when it's obviously the one big thing comes in and within a couple of minutes, we take off like 500,000 euros of that deal. Um, so obviously you realize that, oh, shit, like, on this one deal, we've already helped um, create an ROI of like 20, 30, 40 X um, on our fees. Um, so again, it's it's great for the customer. Sometimes it's a little bit, um, I'd say a pity for us uh, because obviously we, we could have captured more of that value. Right, and are you planning to do anything with it? Because like, are you changing your pricing according to like how much you're, you're saving? uh for your for your customers is there like anything on the roadmap about that so we've actually experimented with it um it turns out that still for us the, the pricing that works best for for us and most importantly also our customers is really more a, a flat SaaS pricing based on the platform how much they use it 
how many um, basically how many uh, different features they use, how many people they bring on. So it's it's always better to have a pricing focused on the value we deliver as a as a platform, um, and then really having the customers create that um, that ROI for themselves. I think that was the that was the big learning for us um, as well. So we we experimented with like percentages of savings or. Um, but it always ends up in a discussion that, that you don't want to be in. So really the part of, um, hey, use this. It will make you successful. It doesn't need to make us successful. It makes you successful as a customer. Um, that's really what, what resonates extremely well and also helps us in terms of uh, both like acquisition and retention of customers. Right. Yeah, we, we, we just had this conversation on the podcast like yesterday, I think, uh, with other founders uh, who yeah also changed their pricing uh, and it just became so confusing. So they, they had to go back. So like, and because no one wants to like, just, just sit there and try to like compare what's better. What is the, uh, what is the pricing plan that I need to choose? Like, is it going to bring me more money or like, is it going to rip me off at the end? So uh, I guess that's a, that's, that's a great strategy. Pricing for me is always something where the pity is that the only thing that you can do is actually trying it out, right? So mm-hmm. you can, you can collect as much data as you want um obviously we did that we like looked at usage of customers looked at what would be the perfect like roi for them how can we extract most value from that um but in the end it really comes down to perception to a lot of psychology in a way um some things that that people want to pay for others they don't feel comfortable paying for so that's really where um you end up just having to try it out yeah yeah that's true okay i wanted to come back a little bit to like the very beginning, right, to to raising the funds, because uh, you've got a fascinating story there as well. You actually went with the same investors as as you worked with at Eva Park. Uh, And that's really interesting because, well, we we always talk about at SaaS Group uh, how you have to uh, build relationships with your investors or potential acquirers and like how important it is. And obviously it worked for you. So could you maybe uh, talk a little bit about that? Like how, how did you um, yeah, keep in contact with, the, with your investors and how did they want to invest in this new venture again? Yeah, so it definitely helped us, especially in the early days, already having some sort of network built up through the, through the Evo Park time. I mean, in the end, over those like six years of Evo Park, we obviously spend a lot of time fundraising um, we actually never understood that we just weren't a venture case, which is weird. But with, with Evo Park, it was just simply like, by now I understand, like, there would have been better ways to build this other than venture capital. Um, and But at the same time, obviously, everybody who, who put in angel money back then and also um, Porsche, uh, Porsche Ventures led our Series A back then. So everybody made money on the company. So I think that was, um, that was helpful, obviously, in, in keeping the relation. And then what we did is um, for, for Sastrify, basically when we started thinking about who, who could fund the next venture, um, a big part of that was also like thinking about, okay, who did we really enjoy working with? Um, who were the people that really supported us throughout, uh, throughout Evo Park? Um, and then a big part of that was really like um, going back to them. It's like, hey, would there be interest? This is what we're going to do. And obviously you take out the, the trust base, right? I mean, I've, we've also done now, I don't know, 14, 15 angel investments ourselves. Um, and one of the biggest, especially if you go pre-seed and seed, uh, one of the biggest question marks is always the team. Um, but if you have the chance that you have worked with the team before, uh, you can typically eliminate that to, to a really big part. Okay. And that goes right. both ways. 
actually. So it's also, if you have worked with investors before where you know they've been a great investors, um, then it's also um, also really good to to get them back on board. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess the first one then was was a bit more difficult, like the first fundraising. And the second, you just you just went to the same people. And was it much easier to like say, okay, hey, that was that one was successful. Like there is another one that we're thinking about, or it was just like at the beginning, just like any other new venture. I wouldn't say. I mean, even though it was 2020, right? So in the mm-hmm. in the peak of, or not, maybe not the peak yet, but early days of the the crazy. Mm-hmm. SaaS um, explosion in, in 2021, 22. I wouldn't say it was super easy um, because in the end it was still, I think one of the big problems that we faced was that our topic was very operational. So you would have, have you would have had to work in a company to understand that having a ton of software licenses is an actual problem. And that's sometimes where we ran with like, especially VCs who weren't operators before, they just wouldn't understand the problem. So we, we looked for people that actually had built companies themselves that kind of like transformed in there. And then they, for them, it was basically a no-brainer. Okay, the problem, I understand the problem. I think your solution makes sense. Let's go. So I think the first round for us was still a tricky one. But then in the end, it worked out quite well. And then once we could show the first like six months to eight months, we've basically we became cash flow positive super quickly. We got a lot of cool logos within the first couple of months. Um, and then I think the next round was actually the one where so our seed round was basically seed and Series A in the middle of 2021 was probably the really that's the easy ones compared to to other rounds. Okay, all right. But uh, if I may ask, like, why did you go with VCs in the first place? Because well, you've got this cool idea, and uh, you know it's it's a problem. You know that it resonates with people. What was the main reason to go with the VCs? Yeah, we debated that a lot actually. Um, also in terms of what kind of business, and I think for us the one of the biggest learnings was that your your business strategy kind of dictates your your funding strategy. I think that's exactly the mistake we made at Evo Park, where it was like our business strategy would have asked for a more bootstrap setup um, to really like because it's a slow moving market, and now with the with Sastrify, it's a little different because here it's a fast moving market. Um, it's also about market share and, and really growing fast, so you kind of need that rocket fuel, and I think that's kind of why. Um, where we see now, like one of our competitive advantages was that we had good access to VC money. Um, so why not, why not use that to grow even faster? I think that was the, the main, main discussion. So basically if you have something that really scales with money, then venture capital is just the right funding strategy for the, for the business strategy. Okay. All right. And, uh, yeah, talk about scaling. Um, you, you added. Uh, I, I think I had a number somewhere uh, around 100 people uh, or more uh, to the team uh, in like very short period of time. And I started thinking about it and it's it's actually uh, at first it was like, wow, that's like a big number. And then I thought about SaaS Group and I was like, oh, but we did the same. But <laughs> so um, what, and I know our challenges, like how difficult it is sometimes to add so many people and introduce them to the culture and um uh, how did it go for you? Like, how do you work with that? Like, how how do you introduce so many people, integrate them into the team? Yeah, so basically what we did is we went from 50 to about 150 last year. Um, and the I think one of the big advantages and at the same time challenges is that we're a fully remote company. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously we had a big access to to global talent pool. Um, and at the same time, you have to onboard everybody completely remotely, which is also um, a challenge by itself. But it, to be honest, I think it, that works extremely well, uh, both from a business perspective, but also from a, from a cultural perspective. Uh, I think the in the end, what you have to... Um, yeah, what, what we do is you have to be, you, you will not get it right, right? If you hire 100 people, there is no way that you will get 100 people, right? Um, so the, the thing what we do really is like we, we focus very much on um, the very German topic of probation periods. So I know it, it varies quite a bit in different countries, obviously. But for us, it's like first six months of onboarding. That's really when you have to figure out like if it works or if it doesn't work. Um, and then that's basically, so we do check-ins after, uh, the first month, the third month and the fifth month. And then if there's a question mark on one of the three of those, that basically already tells you that it won't work out. Um, and even before that in hiring, uh, we do at least three to four interviews, reference checks, plus, um, a founder interview. Um, so there's also quite a, quite a lot of work that goes into the hiring process already. Okay. All right. And, um, once they are on board, like what are the values of Sastrify? Like how, how are you selling the company to the new hires? Yeah, so I think the, we do have a, obviously we do have a set of values um, that's very much built around um, impact and ownership. I think there's the, the, those are probably the most important things that are almost naturally given by being remote. So I don't, I, I can't watch like how many people, like how much somebody's working or um, when they're working, it's really about output. Um, and I think that's, that makes it extremely, um, extremely helpful on the, the focused on uh, being focused on impact. And then for me, the, the second biggest one is really the people taking ownership, having a really entrepreneurial mindset and especially in the phase we're in, right? So still, we're still a small company. I would still expect from everybody at Sastrify to, to know what we stand for and, and to drive that forward. Um, and I think that's kind of the, what, what we really look for and also what we try to, to bring very closely to people um, within the first couple of weeks. This episode is sponsored by Rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com slash course, rewardful.com slash course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Okay, wonderful. All right. Like I mentioned, and you mentioned a few times that you're in Germany in Cologne. And what I see sometimes uh, with European startups, uh, when I talk to founders, they start with, you know, working with the local local 
per se market. So and, and you guys went big right away. How how did that work for you? Because like again, some founders too, when uh, for example, an American market, they would actually move to to the U.S. to just understand the culture and and everything. Um, so how did it work for you? Was there any hack to like to just go big? Um, I think. I think I still believe very much in the topic of or the concept of beachhead markets. So I really believe that um, building out one city, one country, stuff like that makes sense. Um, and I think we went to, so it took us to be, well, very much north of at least close to a million in AR, the first couple of customers to think about other countries. Um, and then what we did is basically we, we saw that we had interest already from other companies and, the, uh, and other countries, and there was not really like a blocker, like from a legislation perspective or something like that, where we would say, hey, that's an issue for us. So we basically said, what we did is we hired um, pretty entrepreneurial people um, for those countries, right? So we had a guy from the UK for the UK, we had a French guy for France, and we hired a, a Spanish person for, for Spain. Mm-hmm. And that basically allowed us to like have small sub entrepreneurs and just told them like, Hey, go and see what happens. And then once we saw that they brought in the first couple of customers, we thought, okay, maybe it makes sense to build out a sales team there. So it was basically, I'd say low, um, rather low invest from our side for, for early signs. Mm -hmm. And it also, our business model allowed us to go pretty, pretty broad. And then we did a similar thing with the U S but that being said, most of that was also 2021 and 2022 so actually more 2021 so it was also in the time where only top line mattered for us mm-hmm. um would i do that again where, knowing what we know now and basically being in a market where obviously as a venture-backed startup it's about efficient growth not only growth i would probably be more careful with opening new countries as well okay interesting so you guys are sales led like what is your uh, what is your main customer acquisition channel? Uh, are, do you go happily with, with the sales? Do you uh, or do you leverage something else? So we do have um, we do have quite a like I'd say a healthy marketing contribution somewhere to twenty to thirty percent for inbound, and then the the rest is really a split between AEs and SDRs on how they basically prospecting, right? And I think then that's that works pretty well for us, given that. Uh, I think with the strong ROI, it resonates really well with uh, with our target customers. But that's pretty much the the motion that we run. So we, I'd say we're still predominantly outbound. Um, but at the same time, um, by now, like as the market matures a little bit, we also do see more interest, more search volume, so we can go more on inbound as well. Okay, and you're uh, you're closing pretty big customers. So with the huge investment that you have, and with these big names as your customers. Um, how does that affect your, your roadmap? Did you have to somehow uh, adjust it to your new customers, those that you know maybe are making the uh, 60x uh, return on their investment? Or like, how does it work for you? Um, so we, we run, obviously, product very closely to two customers. And I think we, we have this natural motion of growing a little bit with our customers. So for us, that specifically means that a lot of our customers come obviously from a tech background or somewhere and we're now basically moving into the more traditional sectors, right? So we obviously started up with more or less startup companies, scale-ups, um, and now we realize that obviously over time you then grow into 
there's 400 people scale-ups, but there's obviously a lot of other 400 people companies out there. So you're now building the bridge into the more, let's say, yeah, conservative market or more also more long-term market, right? And I think that's kind of where, where we are now, which definitely requires some product work. So small things like, obviously, most of our early customers all run on Google. Now, most of the new customers all run on Microsoft. So obviously, you have some, some adoptions there that really go into the product. But it's from a value proposition side, it's actually very similar. So I think that's super helpful for us. Um, but it's just a very interesting motion in terms of what you need to build to actually crack the, or the crossing the chasm, as it's, uh, as it's typically called. And going really into mass market or the, the let's say less less junior companies, right? And like if one of your biggest customers says, you know what, like I need that feature, uh, and or, or I need that built in, into the uh, into your system, do you try to work with them, or is it like, oh, we have our vision, you know, for the next three years, and maybe we'll consider that, like if more people are, are talking about it, or you know, it, it's just your vision and like no one said has that changes. Yeah, it's really, um, in the end, it's always a prioritization topic. So we never build something just for one customer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's something when, for example, we see a large customer that tells us I need this integration and we know whatever 10 other customers have already asked for it, then we might prioritize it um, to either win or retain that customer. But if it's only that one customer that requires that one thing, um, then we don't build it. So that I think that's one of the things that we, we really learned um, from Evo Park as well. It's like the, you have to stay true to what like the product vision is and what customers tell you as a, uh, and you can't go from like one customer to the next customer in terms of features, but you really have to build a common ground um, and focus on those topics. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we also discussed this uh, here. And uh, yeah, everyone says that, first of all, think about the volume of the requests and then think about like who is requesting because like, if it's just a very, very small customer, then maybe, yeah, maybe not. But if it's your huge customers that really bring the bread and the butter, uh, then yeah, probably probably that's what you need to do. Uh, okay, so the next question is, what is the main challenge so far, like working with these big customers and navigating like the, the smaller customers and the bigger names? Um, I think what was really important for us, especially this year, was also defining and redefining our ICP mm-hmm. um, because obviously also customers changed over time, right? So you don't see that many fast growing companies in terms of headcount anymore. Nobody is growing like crazy on headcount these days. Yeah. Um, because everybody's looking at costs. So I think that's also something where we had customers were, who were adding like hundreds and hundreds of people every month, um, obviously at different needs than those that are now basically um, growing slower or like spending less money. So I think that's, that was for us really important. So now we, what we did is we basically segmented our customers, really understood what do smaller customers look for, what is kind of like this medium-sized customer, which is kind of our sweet spot at the moment. And then what are bigger customers using, uh, looking for? Because that's kind of like the direction we're going. So um, I think that's the, like, let's say less focus on the smaller ones, really nailing it for the current ICP, which is like this medium-sized customers, and then really trying to understand what is next in terms of larger customers. I think that's kind of the, the way we look at it now. And that's really the, the, that was the biggest challenge this year to understand why are some customers working out? Why are others not working out? 
um, given that we're only a three-year-old company, there's not a lot of like historic data you can rely on. Um, so this year was really a lot of learning for us in terms of seeing what works and what doesn't work. Okay, interesting. It's it's not the first, I think it's, I don't know, 20s, 30s episodes where a founder would say, we are moving out of like the startups and even the uh, SMBs towards like bigger enterprise. It's It's really fascinating. Is it the fact that while smaller companies right now are, well, not getting any bigger, they don't really have any uh, any money to spend on the new SaaS and the new subscriptions, or is there any other reason for that? I mean, for there's definitely the part of where startups are not just not growing as fast in headcount anymore and, and developing as, as part of a company. Um, so I think there's definitely a part there. I think at the same time, especially for our business model, you need to have some sort of software stack that we make sense, right? So if you only spend 100K on software every year, then you don't need a solution that helps you save significant money on that. Um, if you spend 10 million on software every year, then obviously our impact is completely different, right? So if I get 10% reduction, it's 10K or a million. Um, and that also defines obviously how much value we can extract from it. So um, in the end, I think it's a lot about, for us, it's a lot about that we've seen the bigger the wheels that we're turning, the more impactful we can be. Um, why we why we made that choice. Um, and yeah, I think, but as an overall market right now, there's no startups out there that have extra money to spend. Um, and the whole part of, yeah, we're just going to buy every software out there, every SaaS product that helps us. Um, even like, even or especially us, even we are now like, okay, do we really need this? It costs us like 300 bucks a month but we're still going to question it. We're still going to get rid of it. So the, the budgets are tight. And I think that's just, uh, yeah, that just had, that was completely um, overthrown over the last two years. Right. So do you use Sustrify for Sustrify? Oh yeah, we do have Sustrify <laughs> for Sustrify. It's very, it's, it's very funny because when we started out building Sustrify, our key customer, we always told people like, it makes sense when you're like a hundred people plus company, um, and we were only like a 20 people company, so we could never understand and relate and there wouldn't be a point of using it for us. But then now that we've grown into that size for now, it's like everything, like every software, obviously we buy, we buy through Sastrify. Like our procurement team takes care of it. Um, we use the processes that our product team builds. So um, it's very, it's a very fun exercise. Okay, that's interesting. All right. So uh, since you mentioned the, the ICP and like how you focused on the, on the middle market, uh, how long did it take you uh, to, to, to understand your ideal customer? Uh, what did you do for it? Were there any mistakes and learnings, challenges? Or you were just like, okay, so, you're using a lot of software, so let's go there. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, I mean, one of, one of the biggest challenges, so we, so we had two big phases of this, right? I think the first one was really finding product market fit, which was beginning of like, the first three to six months in um, where we really understood, we started a lot with the savings topic like, Hey, we kind of save you money, but that was like in the heights of um, venture capital. So nobody cared about saving money, but they all cared about saving time. So once we understood that part, our pitch was not, we're going to save you the money on it, but we were, we're going to save you time on it and it pays for itself because we also save you money on it. So that was the, um, that was a big switch and that really like from one month to the other, you could see like, oh, this resonates really well with customers. We get them in. And I think then 
obviously we, we've grown super fast for the last two years. And then this year um, we saw the first couple of customers with, ah, oh, maybe it's not working out for them for whatever reason. So we really dive deeper into those kind of customers and understood, okay, maybe this customer is too small, right? If you only have a hundred K software spend, but you pay 30 K for Sastrify, pretty obvious that that won't make sense. Um, so those kind of combinations where, where we understood like, okay, we need the higher spend. We need more complex customers. Also our value prop, um, became more sophisticated. So we needed more, let's say sophisticated or complicated setups to work in, um, which pushed us up market a little. And I think that's what we did for the bigger part of this year. So it's obviously a lot of number crunching, a lot of speaking to customers and really like, and you probably have to do that every like every year or every every other year anyways, um, just to, to um, yeah, keep up with the market. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so just a couple more questions. Uh, first one is, uh, so far, what has been the biggest win and the biggest failure for the company or for you as, as a leader, as a founder, personally? I think the biggest win for us has really been getting where we are right now in such a small period of time. Um, and at the same time, we, we quickly touched upon this, but I think really building out the team um, that's working so well together in that remote setting. I think that was for me, um, that's still the biggest win. I always, I always like to say that there's the um, there's a big part of uh, what I enjoy about building companies is the people you meet along the way. And now there's um, 150 people that I hadn't known three years ago. Um, so it's quite a um, quite a fun that I now enjoy work with every day. So I think that's kind of the, the big benefit. Um, and that's for me, the, the biggest win. Um, I think in terms of failure, um, we could have seen a couple of things earlier, right? In, in hindsight, I would have gone probably more conservative, even though the markets were that hot. Um, I would have probably whatever, not, not opened that many countries at once, not onboarded that many customers in so many different regions, um, but sticking more to what you know works. Um, that's probably like, we, we obviously wasted a ton of money on stuff that um, now in hindsight, you could have seen coming that it won't work. But that's a little bit of the, I guess that's just at the same time, it's, it's a hindsight discussion in the end. Um, yeah. Knowing now, um, it's obviously much easier. Right, absolutely. All right, thanks for sharing that. And well, the, the last question is is about hack. Uh, so could you share, because uh, you're obviously very happy about the team and you guys are growing uh, incredibly. So what is your hack for sustainable growth of a company of, of that size already? Um, how to, yeah, like uh, I think I asked that before, like how to onboard so many people and make sure they all work perfectly together how to onboard your customers, how to, you know, bring the vision out there, how to be, I mean, you're, you're probably like the first face I see when I open LinkedIn every day, because there is the ad of <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> so yeah. Is there a hack? Um, I mean, it's, I think it's a combination of, of many things. Um, I think if, if I'd go for, for my top two, probably one is definitely around um being close to the customers and charging them as early as you can um, i think that was for us one of the biggest things at the beginning and i always tell it to any startup i speak to is like you have to ask them for money if they don't pay you um then you never know if they really perceive value from it 
So we, we had the first customers when it was only Max and myself with like, basically we used Asana as a, as a repository for their contract. So it was like, we started with revenue and then we built the product. Um, I think that was, that's probably a little extreme, but that's definitely one that gets you very far. Um, and then I think the second one in terms of people, um, so the single biggest difference for me in, in hiring people is reference calls. And I still see way too little companies doing that. Um, so for us, everybody who joins Sastrify has at least two reference calls um, uh, that we do for them, um, because in the end, that's the only thing. And it it doesn't obviously it doesn't get you to a hundred percent, but it gets you it filters out a very big amount, and we we avoided a very big amount of mistakes um, through those reference calls. Oh wow, that's interesting. I think I've never heard I've never heard any founder say that. I don't think, did I have a reference call? I should ask my manager. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how many people send you, like we always ask for reference. So if somebody tells you, I can give you a reference, it's a red flag. If somebody sends you a reference and then the reference tells you, you should not hire this person, then it's also a big red flag. Oh, sure. um, and both of those things happen frequently. Um, so it's really that, uh, even when you have a really good feeling, ask for one or two reference calls. The good people always give you one or two references. And even if they give you references who are their, I don't know, brother, best mate, whatever, they are at least smart enough to give you that good reference rather than sending you something and then it turns out to be a bad reference. So, yeah, for us, it's a, we, we wouldn't do it anywhere else um, to, to hire people. Okay, super cool. And uh, I mean, I, I can only back up the, the, the first hack that you shared, because I think to start like with, with a service per se, just to, to, um, to see if people need that job to be done. Um, I, I think that's brilliant. And then, you know, you just validate your idea and you move on with building the product. But before, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's just uh, too early. Yeah, pretty good. I mean, the only thing there is, you have to know that uh, you have to see a path to actually productize it uh, mm -hmm. because otherwise you end up being a service business. Absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for the story and for the hacks. I think they're awesome. I'm collecting this, uh, you know, hacks to one day just release all of them. Um, so, yeah, thank you for, for sharing. It's a great story. I'm really fascinated to see like where you guys are going. Uh, next year. So hopefully we can do it again sometime. Sure. Thanks for having me, Anna. Thank you and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at Anna at SaaS.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.